I think podcast through Wouter Smeets was a really great insight into what Dutch company prototype you do to be able to help people create their own personal learning journeys. But also we got to talk about wonderful stuff like trust and autonomy within the workspace, remote working. We talked about the four, four day working week. We talked about creative spaces. Router talked on the importance of not just creating just safe spaces, but also brave spaces. And we even got to get some insights from David Bowie on pushing boundaries within the workspace. Well, welcome to the Wow at Work podcast. Today, our guest is Wouter Smeets, uh, co-founder of Prototype U, a company based in the Netherlands who help cultivate happy and skilled workforces through personalized learning journeys. Wouter, you're very, very welcome. Hey, Stephen. Very nice, very nice for you to have me here. So uh, great to be on the show. Yeah, fantastic. It's always a delight to be able to meet people like yourselves like myself or whatever, you know, that are interested in transforming the world of work for the better as well and doing what you do. We're going to talk a little bit later about what prototype you do. I'm also going to be interested in, in I'm interested in the Netherlands and what you guys do based around the, the world of work, because I know you guys are quite progressive. But the, but the first thing I wanted to sort of delve into and, and have a look at it, like I, I know the reason why I do what I do today. There's always a catalyst somewhere in our life that causes us to get to where we are today as well. What, what is it that brought you to creating or start to design uh, processes that help the world of work for the better? Uh, yeah, great, great question, Stephen. And uh, <laughs> just, just asking one question back, does it need to be the nutshell version or the somewhat longer journey to share with you? Because, because I think it started out when I was 18 years old. So that's, that's for me, it's half a lifetime ago. Um, and looking back on... Why was back then, which I think is very normal for young human beings, is that the things that I did were pretty externally motivated. And I wasn't yet really aware of what, what drove me and what I found important. So I studied, started studying aerospace engineering at the Delft University of Technology, uh, which is a way different field than where I ended up. Uh, but it was a very, uh, it really shaped my way of thinking uh, in a way that. In hindsight, I got to learn uh, I didn't particularly uh, specifically like airplanes or only the technology side of it, which is yeah, quite, uh, quite um, uh, difficult for, for, for such a study. And, uh, but what I did notice is that I really loved, and that was what one master's was about, human-machine interaction. So it's about air traffic controllers and pilots with their automation, uh, working together as a, um, as a team to create a safe and uh, efficient airspace. And for me, this holistic perspective on systems with the different actors in it was for me at first, okay, this is what I really like. And then I, um, my first full-time employer was uh, Siemens, where I, in a completely different, uh, different field again, uh, I became an innovation manager there for the remote control of harbor cranes. And um, I got to apply these principles from innovation from uh, the aerospace domain to a completely different domain. So this is also what I became aware of, that I like to uh, look at different fields and connect them together. And also uh, in, in the innovation sense, always love to look at the world as, as how it can be. And while being at Siemens, I worked at these different terminals all over the world. And I started to notice that the working conditions and working environments of people, they are so incredibly uh, in, unequal. So the Pakistani people, Indian people, Chinese people, 
they need to sometimes literally work themselves to death on those terminals while while I was under this this uh, Western uh, contract and I could do great work only six hours a day. But for my colleagues, it was way, way different. And so for me, there, there was something brewing. I want to do something meaningful with my expertise, with what I know, uh, but I couldn't just figure out what that what it was just yet. So at some point I quit Siemens because I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but the honest story is I didn't have the courage to do just yet. So first I became an innovation consultant for two years uh, with design thinking, agile thinking, agile at scale in organizations to help organizations make better products faster. And so through all these steps in my career, I got to figure out uh, more and more what is it what drives and motivates me. And then I think some five years ago, I got to meet my uh, co-founder of Prototype U, Christian, who has a background in people and culture and in education. And we, 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 we considered how the world of work is working now. People are... Uh, wouldn't it be really, really great if people get out of work with more energy than when they started? Uh, could there be more focus on well-being in organizations? And what would be the best way to get there? So the idea existed with Prototype View. What if we'd uh, apply those principles from innovation, not only to the service and product design, but also to develop yourself as a human being? So running small experiments with multidisciplinary teams, figuring out who you are, where you want to go, uh, how you thrive sustainably productive in a work environment, uh, and just run experiments and reflect on that. Um, and that's then where the name Prototype U comes from, where uh, a prototype is a experiment in innovation where you want to learn from. And aren't we all prototypes ourselves where we have a lifetime of learning ahead of us? And um, yeah, you never stop learning. Oh, I like this idea because I know we've spoken before about the whole idea of that, like, you know, we, we do work long hours. We're probably not as productive for the amount of hours that we think. And and yet we feel we have to put in the, the you know, the eight or the nine hours or even longer throughout the day uh, to get the results that's expected of us. When the truth is that really we're probably only productive for about four, possibly five hours a day. And today being Friday, when you think about it, after two o'clock on a Friday or after lunch on a Friday, there's probably very little work getting done around the world for anybody. Uh, I think so, Stephen. So why are, why are we working anyway? So we're, we're just having a chat right now. So that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, this is absolutely fine. This doesn't feel like work. This is joy to be able to talk about these things. But I'm, I'm really interested in what prototype you uh, does when it enters into an organization or it does with the employees or the people that it engages with. Yeah, so, so we run uh, workshops and programs or we train people themselves to run our pro workshops and program, programs. And what we do is we help people experiment towards their ideal work experience. And we have two separate tracks. One can be uh, people in the organization trying to figure out what is the next step in my career and how do I get there? And the other one is uh, started to exist during the, during the pandemic. Uh, lots of organizations figuring out uh, hybrid work, remote work, what's the best solution out there to have people be sustainably productive. Um, and we created a, a track there as well, where we, and our vision is we help people become director over their work experience rather, rather than organizations impose constraints on the, uh, on the employees. And so our philosophy is that we help, uh, we, we give trust to the people that they know how to do their work and help them figure out how they can sustainably deliver their best work. 
and we're just there to guide the process. So we have we facilitate workshops where a team of employees gets together. We guide them through a couple of exercises where they gain more self-awareness and team awareness of how they themselves, but also team members uh, do great work and they share it with each other. So, uh, and then run small experiments to get closer to that ideal work experience, not year plans, but just two to four weeks running some small experiments, then reflecting on it again and taking some small steps again. So really taking those principles from agile and design thinking and apply that to uh, designing your work experience with, uh, so like you said at the beginning, everybody has his or her own challenges at work. So we create personalized work experience, but you don't have to do it yourself. You can uh, help colleagues to, uh, so it's a personalized learning journeys, but with trusted companions who help you along that way and help you towards that uh, ideal work experience. Um. Fantastic. And how, how have companies reacted to this? Because some companies probably have a different way of trying to sort of have a command or control or, um, or, or managing their companies and maybe letting go and giving more trust and autonomy might be difficult. What have you seen? So in the end, companies have to, to actually one essential decision to make. Do we work from a place of distrust or do we work from a place of trust? And when, when working from distrust, uh, you uh, include command and control structures. You tell people what to do and how to do it. But you do notice uh, in the Netherlands, there's a tight labor markets. Uh, it's important to keep people engaged, keep people happy. For to uh, to get and retain talent and to get the most out of your talent, and of course our ideal clients are organizations who feel that the empowerment of people is the right way to go, and that when people feel happy, the organization performs better better too. And but of course there are organizations who are in the midst of a shift. So for us, um, we also help organizations who are still very much in a command and control structure. Uh, but they genuinely want to move forward towards an empowerment structure. And of course, we still uh, sometimes experience managers in a command and control structure. Uh, and we do a career program uh, or we uh, encourage people to also think how could work look like outside of the company that they're afraid like, hey, but if we run a pro debut program, what if they leave? What if my, what if somebody, and we're like, yeah, but if people are not happy, and they're already considering to leave, then it's already there. It's already in their minds. The thing is, you now make it explicit and you can have a talk earlier on. Perhaps there's something you can do about it in the organization. And if not, and people still leave, then you will and you will help that person take the next step in their career. Then you will have created a lifetime ambassador of your organization, of your brand. And, and um Sometimes it's also some for, for the, the work design track. Uh, we sometimes feel that there are managers who feel that they need to check the presence uh, of their people, the physical presence, and how can I be of service or check on the results of my team members when I can no longer see them or not in the physical space with them. So I'm going to share that they need to be at the office on Monday and Tuesday and Thursday at least. And yeah, we just try to encourage people to look at from a different perspective that physical presence is not at all the same as being sustainably productive uh, in our time where, you know, we used to, in our professions in the past, we used to exhaust our bodies, but now uh, we, you, we exhaust our minds and there are really different rule sets to be productive, but also 
as a manager to help your team in being sustainably productive. So um, if there's a genuine intention to get from command and control to uh, empowerment structures, then uh, we're all game. If not, then it's not a fertile soil for us to uh, to run programs. I love the whole idea of uh, you know empowering uh, you know employees within organisations because you know when you when you've got uh, autonomy and you've got trust within organisations, they're the organisations that I suppose over the last two and a half years where we've had this forced remote working placed on us, they're the companies that probably you know thrived or, or flourished are managed to stay above the bit of stagnation where most of us were in this, what what, um, Adam Grant would have talked about would have been languishing. So they probably would have been a little bit above that because there was trust from the leadership within the organization that they knew that they didn't have to have or need to micromanage people within organizations. And when I hear stuff today, when we hear things about organizations, you know, putting tracking software on to keyboard, not on the keyboards, but onto laptops and, and the, uh, you know, workers, uh, computers, systems, and that kind of stuff to see that they're doing a certain amount of keystrokes. They're at the computer for a certain amount of time when they're in remote situations. Oh, my heart just sinks when I think there's organizations still doing things like that. <laughs> Me too. So I, I get I get a little bit sad when you when you share this. So I, I I've read these things too, and I, I just wonder. Like in the end, it's so like I said, it's a decision about working from a place of distrust or working from a place of trust. And depending on which angle you take on, it will turn out that you are right. So if you work from a place of distrust and you're including all these measures to keep an eye on people and to check people, people get less engaged. And they're they're they'll do less great work or not work as hard as you would like them to work. And you feel okay. We need to even have a, a bigger command and control structure because I'm right because people are not working hard. And then you enforce even more measures. Whereas the other way around, when you work from a place of trust and you trust people to do the right thing and work in service of those people and ask, what do you need to do to do great work? What do you? How can I help you do just that? And um, some people thrive immediately. Some people need a little bit support because they are not used to getting all this autonomy and freedom. That's also okay. But once you start doing this and just working in service of people, then trust turns out to be a self-fulfilling prophecy too, working in service of your company. So in the end, it's it, it's up to, I, I'd say, organization managers. Do you choose to act from a place of distrust or do you choose to act from a place of trust? And for me, the interesting thing is, is that uh, before the pandemic, people were, were expected to be at the office. Uh, lots of managers didn't trust people to do great work at home because people were just languishing at home. They wouldn't, uh, they were just at their coffee machines all the time or talking to neighbors and friends. And, uh, but then, then at some point during the pandemic, we had to. So people were spending time decentralized at their own homes, at other places remotely. And hey, we turned out even to be more productive than we even in anticipated. And uh, of course, not always, but it turned out that it, it was a measure that was being forced and we're being, being even more productive. And then now uh, there's all this talk about getting back to the office again. And of course, the office can have a function, but to me, it's just a means to an end. It's a tool. So how do you use the office? And the part about getting back to the office, sometimes it feels like uh, even though the last couple of years, there is proof of being more productive uh, in the way that we were forced to be in the pandemic. 
um, that uh, managers now, uh, now that still don't trust anymore that people will do just uh, deliver great work uh, in a decentralized remote way. And it feels like taking a step back. And um, yeah, it's a shame when you have all these enforcements like checking whether people control their mouses or if they're behind their laptop. Uh, it isn't an indicator of productivity at all. Uh, what does it tell me about my productivity if I'm scrolling? I can scroll. I, I can be scrolling on Instagram or on Facebook. And, and also, you know, uh, if I'm not behind my screen and I'm taking a walk outside, uh, walking or cycling for me are ways for me to get creative. So all organizations feel creativeness is really important. Um, so if that's the case and walking and cycling are a great means to do so, then why not encourage that and see that as part of your work uh, rather than sitting behind your screen? I like that. I, I'm a big fan of that. Like what we, we might call monk time or just taking time out for, um, say, an hour to be able to think or to read, whether it's like yeah, at some stage during the week or even at some stage during the day. Like I always talk about this because I'm really interested in how I mentioned Charles Darwin and I mentioned Charles Dickens and two authors like Charles Darwin wrote 19 books. Charles Dickens wrote 12. And those guys used to write for about four hours in the morning. And for the rest of the day, they would walk and they would think about their ideas and what they would do next. And it's, it seems like we've created workspaces where we don't allow that ha to happen. All the, the best ideas come in those gaps, in those moments where we allow ourselves the freedom to be able to just say, I don't need to be looking at a screen or looking at text or doing something to, 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 to come up with an idea. It can happen in those freeing moments. And I think workspaces need to provide more of those freeing moments, whether it's an external room where people can just go sit and they can just, whatever, disengage from tech and then just you know, either have conversations or, or be in silence or do simple things like go for the cycle or the walk or whatever it might be. Like I know who has been in the press recently in, in the last number of weeks, Patagonia, uh, the, the outdoor clothing company. And if you've ever read um, Yvonne Schoenard's book, Let My People Go Surfing, one of the interesting things that they had in that book was the idea that um, because they were based in Ventura in, in California, the surf was always great um, around there. Mm. The people that work for the organization loved the outdoors because they created, um, you know, clothing and items that, that enabled the outdoor life to be more fulfilling because that's where it came from. Yvonne started to buy, uh, uh, to build little climbing clips when there wasn't climbing clips back in the, in the, in the, in the late fifties and into the sixties. Anyway, the idea was that if you work for that organization and there's good surf on Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock, like you never know what's going to happen till it, you know, it's just about to arrive. Well, why wouldn't you go surfing on Tuesday afternoon at three o'clock if the surf is good rather than sit in the office? So when he talks about let my people go surfing, he realizes let my people go and do this, but they'll repay me in other ways. Definitely. And I, I, I really love, uh, the, uh, by the way, the way Patagonia goes out and change the rules of work, but also uh, the ways of how organizations can do business in our world. Uh, so I uh, really love that. And uh, uh, so Christian is, uh, is a surfer, so my uh, co-founder of Prototype View. And I sometimes surf. I wouldn't call myself a surfer, but I love, I love to throw my board in the sea and just see what happens. Uh, and uh, I have a great time anyway, uh, even when I don't catch any waves. But it's like this mini holiday. And every time I get back from the ocean, because I really love to hang out at the beach, it's my, it's my happy place, then uh, the world feels a bit lighter. And uh, like you said, you literally need headspace to be creative, for new ideas to be able to enter your mind, rather to have a cluttered mind, a full mind. And we need this 
sometimes this time. And I love how you uh, made the examples of the two trolls you were talking about. Uh, that actually a couple of hundred years ago, people already figured it out. And uh, it seems that we are refiguring it out again. Yes. And um, need to look at these examples from the past where sometimes you, especially in this era of working with our minds, we need sometimes we need to work less to achieve more. When you have a uh, clear mind, you're a, you nurture your well-being, you're a great state of being physically, mentally, then you're able to separate the main things from trivial, trivial matters, uh, but also uh, when you work on the things that matter to be able to have such more creative and productive output while working on those things. Yeah, so being productive is, 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 is decoupled, there's more and more decoupling from the time we spent on something. So uh, it's also around creating cultures where people don't feel guilty when leaving an office after three hours of productive work. And um, not saying like good afternoon when somebody gets in the morning, gets, uh, gets, gets in the office at 11 o'clock, for example. So, uh, and, and, and there also leadership comes in, by the way, where it's not only about saying that it's important, but also walking the talk, setting a clear example and showing it every day that it's okay to leave early. It's okay to leave late. It's okay to go for a surf session. So for, uh, I think Christian and I, well, we need to get our surfboards out. Uh, so that's a note to self and also show to the people we work with, hey, there's a great surf today. We're out surfing. So uh, this will help us. And uh, yeah, I, I hope that more and more organizations uh, and leaders will notice that sometimes working less is needed to achieve more and to do great work in a sustainable way. Uh, so without depleting people's batteries. I love that. Actually, one of the things Patagonia do very well is they also used to take senior senior management and they used to have their meetings um, in places like they would go into South America. They would go on a camping trip. They are a climbing trip and they would sit around campfires and they discuss the future of the company. And I kind of like that organic way of sort of, you know, getting back to what we would have done thousands of years ago, sit around campfires, tell stories, share, you know, ideas, share experiences with each other. And I brought that up because about three weeks ago, I did just that. I, I, I went away with some other entrepreneurs. There was about 150 of us. And we went down to um, Sussex, East Sussex, down heading towards Hastings in um, in the southeast of England. And when we went down there, we uh, we had 150 of us camping for three days in fields and just talking about what, like, you know, what really matters to us when it comes to, you know, the way we work and the way we all have these different businesses and what we do. And we did these wonderful workshops and these wonderful talks that got to the nub of what we what, what we really wanted from from not just the world of work but our own work. Um, one of the things that we did was we did this beautiful um, uh, session with a guy called Victor who's based in Sweden, and he does rituals. So he helps us to be able to perform rituals, rituals that can actually help. Um, you could actually design to help somebody who is maybe parting from the company where you have a ritual where you can actually help them transition from the company in a beautiful ritual that everybody is involved in or even rituals into new phases within the organizations. I think there's something beautiful about that. And it's, it's, it's just lovely to get involved in stuff like that. One of the other things that we did while we were away there is we did lots of singing together. 
And we did all these sort of, and we got into these harmonies and these little sort of groups and small tents. But one of the things that we did every morning was we would get together and we had a, a there was a particular comedian was the, the compare of this Sanderson Jones. And what he would actually do was he would stick on, um, uh, say, a karaoke classic. It could be Toto's Africa or something like that or whatever. We all know the lines. put up on the big screen. <laughs> yeah. And then all the words would come up and the whole 150 of us in the tent would all sing along. And it was just... It was incredible and it was a great start today. And we did that a couple of times throughout the day. Sounds like an amazing experience. And just from doing that, the next day when I came back to Ireland and I was delivering a workshop I did on the Monday, I was wondering what to do with a group of people that I was finishing up with. It was the last day of a workshop with them. And I decided to do just that. So I found a song that I think perfectly fitted the ending of our, uh, of our six weeks together. And we in a room. All, all learned the words and sang the song together. What, what, what was the song? What was the song? The time of my life. It's, um, God, you're going to make me sing this now. You know, from the film Dirty Dancing with Jennifer Warren, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bill Medley. I've had the time of my life. And we all did this in a room together. And there's something so connecting with that. It was the perfect song for the group I had at the time. And we did it. And I think, yeah, what we talk about, about creating trust with people is allowing moments like that to be able to happen. Yeah, what what comes to mind? So it sounds really beautiful. And what comes to mind is that sometimes in Western society, uh, we talk about this radical independence, uh, like uh, taking the freedom yourself. But I sometimes like to shift the, to to the beauty of rad radical interdependence. So uh, finding it beautiful to be your own person, but also to feel so connected with everything around you. So the people around you, but also nature and our ecosystems. Uh, so I more and more think about this 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 concept of radical inter interdependence and helping each other get the best out of us and um, uh, rather than seeing each other as isolated islands so uh really nice for you to bring up I, I, it's a shame that i didn't get to experience that uh, 150 people in the east sussex and uh and, and chanting these songs because it sounds like an awesome experience and the one word that also by the way came up uh that resonated was harmony and the reason i feel the need to bring it up is that we often talk about work-life balance and when we talk about work-life balance for me words matter so work-life it seems as there are two separate fields two separate isolated uh, silos where they need to be balanced out with each other so life is to be enjoyed and work it's supposed to drain your batteries and there needs to be a certain balance between the two whereas i feel why not let let's let's not call let's stop calling it work-life balance let's strive for work-life harmony so you have your life and work is integrated to that in a way that surfaces your personal vision on what's a life worth living and that's something different for everybody so let's stop with this let's say view of that there's a one-size-fits-all work-life balance and let's go to personalized work-life harmony and try to uh, for organizations to help people achieve that. Uh, and, since, and then we're going full circle again. As when people feel good, organization just performs better. I like that because I think, I suppose in the world we are in now, some companies are really sort of struggling with the, uh, like I, I always think about it, like throughout the year, we have something like like World Happiness Week or we might have, you know, World Mental Health Day or we have like the 14th of 18th of November are going to be anti-bullying week or whatever it might be. So for that week, there's lots of information about bullying in the workplace and that kind of thing. And I always sort of despair with a lot of these things sometimes because I feel like we, we, we put a spotlight on something for about three or four days or a day and we all talk about like, you know, what makes a great workplace or what makes us feel happier. And then for the rest of the year, we just return 
to type. We just go back to what we've done before and nothing really changes. It's almost like we tick a box. And I, and I think the whole idea about well-being around the workplace, a lot of people have like provided things that probably are nice, like yoga and stuff like that, and little workshop for this or that, or whatever it might be. But I don't think there's, I think some companies are failing in that way that they're not doing like the stuff that prototype you do and other organizations are doing to be able to really make a, a concrete change within organizations. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned this because um, we explicitly offer learning journeys. We don't really believe that a one-off one day or one week of something will change the world. Of course, it helps something. It makes it top of mind. Uh, but in our day where there's so much day-to-day busyness, it's easily you're, and you're going from one week into another week with a theme and it, it slowly fades away again. And that's why we specifically work with learning journeys where you have, let's say, uh, you get to an action plan and under a workshop, but then in the weeks in between, you are specifically committed to following, following up on that plan with support from a buddy who helps you along the way. And then you, because you already have this moment in two to four weeks from now, you uh, have more accountability and the chances that you will follow up on your plan will increase. And then when you have a reflection session two to week, four weeks after the first session, then you will help people reflect on what did I learn from the part of my plan I executed? But what did I also learn from the part of my plan I didn't manage to execute? And what can I learn from them? And then to take next steps on the topic. So creating a small action plan again to take next steps. And what happens is that people take concrete steps on a certain certain theme. It can be diverse, diversity inclusion, can be uh, your career, it can be uh, happiness at work. Uh, but what also happens is that you internalize a certain process. I would say learn how to learn. Uh, internalize this process of running experiments together, uh, helping each other learn and reflecting on that. So small experiments, reflecting on it in a positive way, and then to take next steps. And then you really um, make something stick. So it's this change process, not only on the certain topics, but also to learn a way of learning that you can apply to actually all aspects to life uh, as, as it's a lifelong learning process and change process. Oh, I love this. Because when I think about it, like for the eight hours that we spend in work, we spend roughly eight hours in bed too as well. Or, or more if you, if you have, uh, if you have a great day. <laughs> I, love, I, I, mostly, I, I, I honestly, I often sleep eight to nine hours a day. That's for me, it's an optimum. I, I'm, I'm a big fan of lots of sleeping. Makes me, uh, makes the hours that I'm awake uh, way better and more agreeable person to others as well <laughs> yeah I, i'm the same with this as much sleep as you can get and i think that's one of the things that we've lost is uh, this idea that we should be awake longer that the world is too exciting to sleep that if you should only do five or six hours sleep a night and if you're if you're not just only you know doing five or six hours sleep a night uh, you're, you're probably not doing the right thing because we've been pushed into the idea that we should spend lots of times, you know, being productive and working. Yeah, and all the big short CEOs uh, who push the narrative that they only sleep for four hours uh, a night and then work for 20 hours a day. And this is being romanticized as, as something great, where I feel it's something that we shouldn't romanticize at all. It's just bad for well-being. It's a bad example for, I think, how we can go about uh, with sleep, life and work. I think it's, you're, you've, you've hit on something there. 
because when it comes from senior management or CEOs and organizations, Cheryl Sandberg would have talked about this, about coming back after, like I think she was back after a couple of weeks after having her child or back into the workspace. Um, and our CEO is talking about some sort of ritual where they get up at four o'clock in the morning and they've got, you know, half their work done by six o'clock and then they just do all this great work till 10 o'clock at night. I don't think it's helpful. and I don't think it's productive. And I think it actually puts a lot of stress on people within the workspace or whatever. But the idea that if if we didn't get good sleep at night, um, we would go and we would see somebody about this, uh, maybe get some medical help or whatever, get some advice or do something about it. But when we go to the work, when we go to our workspaces and we have really difficult times at work or it's we're finding that we're really, you know, finding work really difficult, there's very few places that we can turn to. It's not seen as something that you would actually look for advice on. Yet you are providing that and other organizations are being able to help with this. And I think we've, we've, we've needed this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, what, what we really try to do also from that perspective is that we often see that the managers do often have great, great intentions to help their employees, but it can also sometimes be a bottleneck for them because they have a lot of employees to take care of. And sometimes when you have, uh, many employees to take care of, you cannot take care of everybody. So we try to get rid of the hierarchical component there and say, as human beings, from employee to employee, you can also help each other. So create these peer support structures where employees uh, get to know each other better, uh, get to know each other's unique work needs. So some people are introverts, other extroverts, other love the people, uh, their, their meetings in the morning, others in the afternoon. Uh, people get to know each other's morning routines, which help them feel energized. And so it's it's normalizing and exploring behaviors that are helpful in the workforce and hearing it from your peers, supporting each other as peers, which also makes that managers can support in different ways. And the manager is no longer the bottleneck, uh, because why would it be only the manager who's supporting the career development or the work experience of their employees? Why can't colleagues support each other in doing so? And that's our philosophy so create these personalized learning journeys with support systems, uh, because sometimes you have this Western narrative of the self-made hero who with perseverance and grits uh, achieves all goals. But I feel often we forget about support systems and how uh, important it is to have people in your corner who you can trust and who you can uh, share things with if things are not going the right way. Also when they are uh, just from human to human, uh, makes all the difference in achieving your goals, personal company goals, to have these peer-to-peer connections. So that's also something um, even more so in uh, with remote teams and in the in the era of remote work to uh, nurture the social tissue of the uh, organization. And contrary to some beliefs, it's definitely possible also in with remote teams as well to connect on a very human way. And to nurture that, uh, where, of course, the, the, the face-to-face without a screen in between is magical in its own way. But I think what it does is that it pulls us towards this sense of belonging. Um, Daniel Coyle would talk about uh, this in the Culture Code. Um, and Amy Edmondson talks about this when she talks about psychological safety. And we know the best organizations are the, those organizations that create that feeling of psychological safety. That's they feel somebody in the organization is looking out for them. They have a feeling that they can speak out about something without fear of retribution. And I think what you do is helping that. Yeah. And, and, and uh, what, what uh, I love this, this definition of a safe space. And 
I even want to take it a step further and go, I, I'd love to refer it yeah, from a safe space. You can also go a step further towards a brave space. And the safe space is one uh, where people dare to speak up, which is great, and dare to share stories. But it doesn't mean that they actively are, that they actively engage in doing so. So uh, in a brave space, it's that you also encourage people to actively explore the waters and actively run experiments to, to try new things and to, to actively engage in learning. And uh, being actively engaged in nurturing your growth, growth mindset and uh, growing yourself as a human being together with other human beings. So uh, uh, love when there's a safe space is being created, love it even more when brave spaces are being created. I kind of like that because that isn't, doesn't that bring us to the point of what, um, I can never pronounce his name properly, Sezeskli, Maya Hetz, who talked about flow at the workplace. I've never got his name right, but you know who I'm talking about. I'm, I'm not going to try this podcast too. <laughs> Sorry. For but, but he talks about the importance of flow and flow is that when we stretch ourselves just to the point of where we're learning and we're just pushing ourselves, you know, beyond boundaries. And when we create workspaces where we allow that to be able to happen, where, you know, we can try new things that have different versions of cause and effect um, or, you know, expand our learning by taking risks or doing something different. That's where the magic begins to happen. Absolutely. And I have this one clip of David Bowie uh, who had this, you know, once shared in an interview, a, a really nice nugget of wisdom. And uh, I actually have it here in front of the screen, so I can just read it out loud. Um, uh, it's um, uh, if you feel safe in the area that you're working in, you're not working the right area. Always go a little further into the water than you feel you're capable of being in. Go a little bit out of your depth. And when you don't feel that you are, your feet are quite touching the bottom, you're just about in the right place to do something exciting. And I really love that clip because for me, innovation is about doing something that's exciting. And if you're in a safe space, then people are free to explore the waters. Uh, in a brave space, pe people really take the plunge and they actively do so. And I think that's a nice distinction how organizations can even uh, move a bit, bit, bit further up, uh, going from a safe space, which is already great, towards a brave space, which bring them even more in terms of innovation capabilities. Yeah, and without that safe space, you couldn't have the brave space in the first place. So we need to cultivate Definitely. the safe space. Yeah, yeah the safe space is, is a prerequisite to be to to become a brave space definitely i love the idea that you chose david bowie because david bowie is a prime example of somebody who was um actively uh changing their career every three to five years or so so just when you thought that ziggy sardust was going to become the biggest thing ever he decided on the last date of the tour i think it was in hammersmith odeon that night where he said to, and the band weren't aware of this that this is the last night you're going to see ziggy stardust and ziggy's dead after this and then he reinvented himself again after that and did this over a number of different reincarnations which was why david bowie was as fantastic as what he was he was never stationary he was always developing growing moving creating that's also it's fascinating right so for for artists to reinvent themselves is really brave because the audience at some point expects them to be something and when they turn out to have a second album they actually expect more of the first album and uh so it's really a taking a big leap for an artist to do something uh, else entirely and but perhaps the same goes for organizations right where people when you've done have routines you've done things for decades and we expect a certain things to go a certain way to do something different there is also quite brave and uh, uh, to, to, to be able to encourage that, to not just want more of the same from each other, 
And I think that's a nice ideal to strive to. To I, I mean, not everything what's there is is broken, right? So we don't. Uh, change is not necessarily progress. Those are two different things. So not all change is progress, but change can be progress. But where progress can be made, that we encourage each other to uh, yeah to take the plunge and to try something new. I like this because I know there's been quite topical lately, uh, the idea of people working, say, four days a week instead of five. A lot of organizations are looking at, you know, this route. We're looking at more hybrid working or remote working stuff that like if we were having this conversation five years ago, we would go, this sounds something very futuristic. The idea that people will work from home or the idea that people will work four days rather than five. And yet we're hearing a lot more of those. And that's a big, brave jump for a company or an organization to say we're going to do this there's 72 organizations in the uk at the moment on a pilot ski on a pilot study with, where they've entered that space where they've gone into the four-day working week what are your thoughts on the four-day week <laughs> i think it's, it's a really really great step in the right direction uh, uh, so the recurring theme also in this in this chat is that uh, um, physical presence or time spent doesn't equal productivity and uh, being able to sustainably deliver great work, we first and for- foremost need to take care of our own physical and mental state of well-being. And uh, in a four-day work week, uh, you're just way better to be able to do so. Uh, so I think it's, it's, it's a great step in the right direction, especially in an era where we work with our minds. Uh, it's a different rule set that applies to being sustainably productive and sustainably deliver great work to the organization. So, uh, yeah, big, big fan of the, uh, the four-day work week. Uh, from a philosophical point of view, it, it still feels as if we're attaching productivity to time. We're still talking about four days a week, um, and, and which is, uh, of course, better than uh, the five days, generally speaking. Uh, but sometimes it can be three hours a day. Uh, sometimes it can be... 10 hours a day if you're on fire and on flow. Uh, so I think it's very dependent on the context and uh, uh, what you need at the moment to sustainably thrive. Uh, so I think it's better than the five days. And I applaud and encourage to organizations to follow that lead. Uh, but perhaps there's even more things we can do. But but I'm talking to 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 you and you're coming in from the Netherlands where you have the shortest working week in Europe. We do, right? We do. <laughs> so I think you're, yeah. what, you're around about uh, 29 and a half hours uh, a week is what, is what you work, I think, is our, something like that, is it? Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I, I don't know the exact number. I know uh, we're uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, quite on the outer end of the scale of uh, the, 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 also the, the part-time number of jobs. Uh, part-time number of jobs. There's of course lots of factors playing in. Let's let's also first address that we're in a very fortunate position to be able sometimes for people to make the decision whether they want to work full-time or not, and what full-time actually means. Uh, working on terminals all over the world, uh, I've been blessed with being born in a Western country where you got to spend five days, eight hours uh, a week. And at some point, so, so first, first of all, you have to be fortunate enough to make that, to be able to make the decision. Of course, there's also forced part-time work also here in the Netherlands for people who want to work more, but aren't able to do so. But the number I think is also there because uh, there's more to life than work. And I think 
in um, the Netherlands, uh, uh, there's uh, at least a big bubble of people, and I think I'm part of the bubble, who feels that you don't uh, live to work, but you work to live. And uh, uh, that work can be an extension of life, can be an extension of how you um, uh, deliver value to society and our world. Uh, and, um, uh, but there's also uh, emphasizing that family life, life with friends is incredibly important. Uh, parents in the Netherlands, also uh, dads and moms alike, they uh, love to take care of their kids and spend time with them, creating happier kids and all those other benefits that will uh, arise from uh, being uh, there for your kids. Uh, so I think it's um, also a perspective. Uh, I think not really an angle section, the contrary of angle section perspective on working long hours, hard hours, work hard, play hard, more like slowing down, enjoying life to the fullest. And there's more to life than work and being okay with that. So uh, I think there's, uh, there's also this part of well-being is important and being, being present. So being present with loved ones uh, also outside of work. So what would you see as the ideal sort of day in, in, in the workplace, say from a Dutch perspective? Ooh. <laughs> um, we always start uh, with by saying that there is not one ideal workday. So for me now to address there's one, this is the ideal workday. <laughs> it's a difficult question for me. Of course, what we notice uh, with the, within the organization we work for, there are some, some key factors. So, uh, and, and often they're not always about the work itself. So when we say, when we talk about the workday, a workday doesn't start with work. It starts with you waking up. So at what time, what is your morning routine? Do you meditate? Do you go for a walk first? Uh, how about uh, uh, listening to a podcast? Or so what do you need to start the day energized? And definitely we notice that people with great morning routines or at least morning routines that fit them, uh, that fit their needs, they just uh, have a head start and they, 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 they get with that energy through the day. So that's uh, a good morning routine as one. And then, of course, for the evening, it's the same. So uh, when do you go to bed? But also, uh, do, uh, do you have social things outside of work? Um, do you even want to work during the morning or during the afternoon? Or are you productive during evening hours? When do you want to do the deep work? So there are, are of course, some things that uh, are bothering people in general. So let's say the back-to-back -back, uh, Zoom and MS Teams meetings, um, where at some point you go from meeting to meeting, but not productive at all anymore. Uh, people who are forgetting their breaks or they are the, the, the lines between private life and work life, they're cluttering. They have difficulties expressing their boundaries to colleagues, especially uh, when working remotely. So having focused blocks of deep work, having uh, solid breaks in between, um, those are often recurring themes when, when uh, setting up an ideal work of, or actually prototyping an ideal work day. If I talk about my ideal work day, having conversations like these, <laughs> of course, no, but uh, th th those things aside. So for me, it's, it's, it's waking up at around seven o'clock. I'm not an early starter. I uh, love my, I like my sleep. My sleep is very dear to me. 
then uh, first of all, straight away, not look on my phone, go outside the house, go for a walk for, for about an hour. It gets my creativeness flowing. I feel lighter uh, and it feels um, all these happy hormones are flowing. Then I start the day with three hours of uh, deep work. So until 11 o'clock from 8 to 11, that's for me the part where I create content. I'm trying to be innovative. Uh, and from 11 o'clock onwards, uh, from 11 to 12, uh, there's time for meetings or for chats like these. Have a really long uh, afternoon walk. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's two hours. Sometimes I don't uh, get back in the afternoon again. And uh, for me, the afternoons are about having uh, focused meetings, so high energy meetings. Uh, and then mostly, I finished again already at four. So yeah, I'm not the kind of entrepreneur who makes many, many, many hours, but I try to focus on doing the right things and trying to also practice what I preach, by the way, which to be honest, is not always easy. And sometimes also I feel guilty when I feel that I could have spent more time than I did on a day. But uh, yeah, it's just so conditioned to think that way, but uh, uh, that's going pretty well. That sounds like a really good day's work to me. That really sounds good. How about your uh, ideal work day, Stephen? God, I'm not far off what you you, you do. Uh, like when I do get up in the morning at around about the same time that you get up at, um, I do have rituals that I do first thing in the morning around, like, you know, how we get out of bed, some breathing techniques um, and, and stuff like that. And then I do go for a walk. I do, I do go for a walk and I love that sort of disconnect because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create a disconnect. I do remember um, only uh, last year I was doing some, some, some help with, uh, with a company that was based in Manchester in, in the UK. And one of the things was a lot of their employees, it was about a year and a half ago and it was right in the middle of all the lockdowns. And one of the employees uh, within the, all the employees within the organization had only started, they were young and they couldn't really get their head around the idea of remote working and uh, and what was needed. And a lot of them, when I got to talk to them as well, some of them were rolling out of bed about four minutes, five minutes before they had to log into their laptop. They're pretty much into pajamas and their day had no disconnection from, you know, the waking experience to, to, to work and it bled into each other. And they really struggled with this. So I helped them uh, around this. So I have these, these demarcations. So I do that, go for the walk, come back, maybe have something small for breakfast or whatever. You know. Oh, no, actually, I don't have breakfast till later in the day. I don't have it till lunchtime. So, but then I get stuck into my day. And like you, I try to get my most focused stuff done in the morning, work done in the morning. And then I realize, just like that you said, by four o'clock, I'm done. I, 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 in my head, I, I, I'm no good after four o'clock unless I'm delivering something and I'm quite happy to do that. But when it comes to, uh, to, to work and research and all that kind of stuff, by four o'clock, I have this, this, this sort of, it's, it's finished, it's done. And then I, I try to finish my day by that. And I think it works very well. And I'm quite happy with that. I, I love how you say that you're also, let's say, putting the explicit demarcations there. And, and add to, from, so I'm, I'm uh, chatting with you now from home. And uh, sometimes I work from home, some from a co-working space. But when I work at home, when I choose to work at home, for me, that walk in the morning to first be somewhere else rather than go for my pajamas straight away behind my uh, laptop, it, it makes all the difference in the world to have these demarcations and to really uh, get going in the morning, um, uh, but also in the afternoon or for, uh, for example, what you just said, when um, you uh, finish at four to make a ritual, to make, to do something that explicitly makes your brain in a, in a different state of being. Uh, yeah. So this, this four o'clock for me is, uh, I try to uh, 
try to do it as well and with varying levels of success by the way but um it's 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 all about you know when you when you 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 close the day for at least a work day um to always aim for this is good enough right now and when when you know i could stare at the screen for another two hours three hours but it doesn't mean i get any valuable things done so rather add folks on good enough for now and um the rest will be done in the next day or perhaps uh, perhaps not and that's also okay oh, i like that feeling and th- th- this is this is a great place to to to, to bring us to to, to where we're, we're just going to end up here shortly but i like the idea of this i've been really interested in the whole idea of that we only have a finite time on this earth Oliver Berkman talks about his book, 4,000 Weeks. We live on average 4,000 weeks if we live live the average life uh, span. And Mo Gaudat, I was listening to a podcast he was talking and he was, uh, he's, he's got the, uh, his book Solve for Happy and he's, he wants to make 1 billion people happy in the world. And he talks about the idea we have roughly about 2 billion heartbeats in our lifetime. And it's, it's about not wasting those heartbeats on things that really aren't, aren't helping at all. So staring at your laptop for three, three hours when you're really not getting anything is wasting heartbeats when you can go and use those heartbeats on something more productive, like throw Frisbee, be around friends or do something that gives you more joy. And I think that's, oh, that's, that, that's what we really need to start thinking about. What are we here on this earth for? You know, it's, it's how we fill those 4,000 weeks, how we use up those heartbeats and how we connect with others. And well, then and I could I can at least say this, this conversation is heartbeats well spent. So thank yeah. you, uh, Stephen. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Walter. It was, it's, it's been a brilliant experience. Listen, how can people find more about Prototype U and what you guys do? Uh, yeah, of course, you can uh, visit our website. It's uh, prototypeu.nl. Uh, and there's an English version of it too for all, uh, for all English listeners, probably. Perhaps there can be some Dutch listeners there as well, but uh, probably mostly English ones. And um, yeah, you can also uh, uh, connect on LinkedIn, pretty active over there. Uh, so on pro, uh, personal profile page, happy to connect there as well. And uh, yeah, if you're curious about ProTabU, of course, uh, feel free to reach out. Uh, yeah, for me, it's just, you know, in the end, life is just really short and, and work makes up a really big chunk of it. So it shouldn't be a cause of people draining their energy or, or talent going to waste. So uh, really want to work together with organizations to make sure that people come out of work uh, with more energy than when they started. And, uh, you know, when, um, when you feel you're that type of organization and want to team up, I'm happy to uh, have that chat and uh, see how we can help each other get to uh, help people experiment towards work-life harmony. Fantastic. I love this. That's a great way, Dan. Work-life harmony. I love it. Wilder, thank you very much. Thank you, uh, Stephen. I had a really great talk. So keep up the good work. 